Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. There are many uh, phrases in our everyday life that have worked their way from the Latin into English, uh, especially, of course, in legal matters, but in other areas as well. And one of the phrases that uh, you may hear is the phrase, the sine or sine quo non, the sine quo non, sometimes it's used in, uh, in matters of uh, politics, economics, your social life, the sine quo non of this. Someone might say the sine quo non of this, of this uh, particular endeavor is this. And the Latin literally means without which not. That's a literal translation. Without which not. We might say, maybe a little bit clearer in English, without, not possible. In other words, it is the one essential thing that is absolutely necessary for this to be possible. Without this, it is not possible. And this morning, I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. And as we continue our series this summer on stories of faith from the Holy Land, Inspired by some of our uh, experiences there this last spring and some of the stories of faith that uh, came to our minds as we traveled there. This is one that I think presents to us the sine quo non of the gospel message. So let's uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, we pray that uh, we would hear your words. Our heart would be open to your words. And we uh, pray your blessing upon us, your presence with us. We pray for our children as they continue to meet. Continue to bless them. Make yourselves real to them, too, as they study your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, Matthew chapter 16, and in verse 13, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. So, I'd like to just stop there for a moment and just kind of put the context for you. The region of Caesarea Philippi, if we consider the, the Holy Land, uh, this particular part, the land of Israel, and uh, the Dead Sea, Jerusalem area, Samaria, and uh, the northern uh, nation, of uh, the northern part of Israel, Galilee, centered around the Sea of Galilee, where our Lord Jesus Christ really spent his entire life, except his few years in Egypt, and then when he came down for the Passion Week, when he died on the cross, the area of Galilee... And Jesus really, his, his entire life really was spent in this area right in here. He went over to the Gadarenes, the Decapolis. He was born in Nazareth. But really in Capernaum up there in the coast on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. But in this particular case, he journeys as far north as he ever journeys, as far as we know from the Gospels. He journeys far north into what's called Caesarea Philippi. And it's up right up here in this area here. This map shows a little bit more detail. The Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, Nazareth would be over here. He travels up here to Caesarea Philippi. Now, you, you can probably put the names together and connect that Philip the Tetrarch named this area after, in honor of Caesar, 
the Roman emperor who was worshipped in the Roman world. Remember, in the Roman world, they didn't care what religion you worshipped. Uh, it didn't matter to them at all. All they cared about was that you included the emperor in the worship. You had to worship the emperor as well. The only religion that was exempt from that was Judaism. That was the only religion exempt from emperor worship. And so this city was named in honor of Philip himself and the emperor. And this area, what's what's particularly um, vital about this area up here is that you, you can't see it so well, but there are several little tributaries of water that come down from the mountain range here. Mount Hermon is up here. And this range of mountains that this area sits between is really two ranges of mountain. And the waters come down from the snows. If you've seen pictures of Mount Hermon, it gets snow up there. And on the other side is Syria, the Golan Heights in Syria to the east. And as we we ventured up there and went up to the springs and so forth and saw uh, where the water comes from underground as it, the snow melts and seeps through the rock and comes in. And these tributaries are what form the source of the Sea of Galilee, and eventually for the Jordan River that flows out of the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. And at one of these tributaries up there, right there, is an area called, in, in the ancient world and in the Arabic, Banias. And Banias is, and you can see there, that beautiful fresh water uh, spring. That is really water that is coming from the mountains. And right where that cave is there, um, at one time, there was a spring right at the foot of this cave, but because of an earthquake, things kind of shifted, and you'll see the water flowing from here. Banias is actually the Arabic translation of Panias. Panias. And the background of this is, well, first of all, this was an area that was a very uh, important center of Baal worship. Remember last week we talked about the worship of Baal with Elijah the prophet? And throughout the, the centuries, Baal was worshipped here, the god of fertility. As the Greek world uh, overtook the, you know, the uh, old uh, Persian Empire and the Greek gods became prominent, one of the Greek gods that was very prominent was the god Pan, right? P-A-N, Pan. Now, we use that word, don't we? Pantheistic, uh, Penelope, you know, the word Pan means everything. And it, got, and it really became, this This is the God, if you've probably seen pictures of him in the mythology and so on, this is the guy who was, the bottom part was goat, right? And the top part was human, kind of a grotesque figure, you know? He was, he was human from here up and goat from here down. That was Pan. And he ended up, because of the fertility of this region and the water sources, he ended up becoming the God that represented agriculture, fertility, and pretty much everything. And this is where we get this word pantheism, the god Pan. And in fact, our word panic comes directly from this because in one particular instant, according to legend, when one of his friends needed help, he let out such a scream and such a hideous noise that the, the danger that was that his friend was in danger of, those gods left him and left him alone. And because of that, that's where we get the word panic from. So Pan is the God who was worshipped. And up here in this area, you can see the cave back there. Uh, we had a chance to walk through the ruins and walk uh, toward that cave, uh, which the, the cave that sat back there that you saw with the waters coming out in front here. 
And but during during the time you have to use your imagination because during the time of the Roman Empire and before the first century, it looked more like this. It had been rebuilt with several temples, and it was in this particular temple here in that cave that we were just looking at, and the springs were down in here, is right there. And you would and so the this is a very strong Gentile community. It's very pantheistic. They worshiped all sorts of God. There was a mix of all sorts of cultures. And and as, and what would happen is they would go there and they would put offerings in the front of that cave. And then at night, Pan would come out and devour those offerings, supposedly. And so this was part of their worship. And this is the area that's known as, in the Bible, Caesarea Philippi. And this is where Jesus went to. And it may have looked like something like this in that area when he went up there to Caesarea Philippi, as far as we can tell, as far north as he went. And this cave, you can go see this cave today, and this is the primary one, but you can also see the ledges on these ones here um, where, the, where the sacrifices would be left for the, for the pagan gods to come out and devour their sacrifices. And this was the main cave from which the god Pan would come and accept the sacrifices. It's in this area here, Caesarea Philippi, and all that to say this very important incident, this story, takes place. When I say story, of course, I'm talking about a literal historical event, not a fable. We take the Bible literally. And it says here, Jesus came, verse 13 again, to the region of Caesarea Caesarea Philippi. That's to distinguish it from Caesarea on the water, uh, maritime. He asked his disciples... Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, I want you to think of the sort of the irony of this and why this is so important that this is said in this particular context. Jesus has traveled to this area that is the, the, the heart of the northern part of this, of this pagan worship, of the worship of the goat god Pan. And this area that at one time was known for its Baal worship. This is an area of idolatry. This is an area of strong religious fervor. And it's also an area named after Caesar, who is worshipped ultimately in the Roman world as a god as well. And it's ironic, isn't it, that it's in this context of, of this Gentile area, this mixed community full of pagan worship, worship of the most powerful man on the face of the earth, the Caesar, the emperor of the Roman Empire, the most undisputed powerful man on earth. That's in this context that Jesus says to his disciples, to all 12 of them, all 12 of his disciples, he says to them, because it's plural, He says to him, by the way, who do men say the Son of Man is? Now, I'm using here, I believe it's the New King James, just because in the language that Jesus spoke, Aramaic, which is a a, um, derivative really of, of Hebrew, it's a very similar language to Hebrew, was a common spoken tongue in Palestine and this area as well for the Jews, that the play on words, see, and you see, and that does come out in the English there, who do men say the Son of Man 
is. And this phrase, son of man, had deep significance from the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. And the Jews understood this. Who do men say? Tell me, who, what are they saying about me? You know, this, the, the message of Jesus had spread, had spread wildly. This was not, like I've mentioned several times, this is not a sideshow. This is not some insignificant event. Um, we, we know that when it comes to the Passion Week, that they say he's upsetting the whole world. And we see it in the book of Acts as well. Um, this is very significant. The news of Jesus has spread clear up here in the north in Caesarea Philippi, outside the region of, 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 of southern Galilee, way up north. And he says, who, what are they saying about me? What are they saying about? What are you hearing about me? Who, who do they say I am? And the response from the disciples is what, what they were hearing from people, and it would have been typical. Some think you're John the Baptist, right? Even, even Herod thought that. When the governor, not the Herod the Great, but his descendant, thought you were John the Baptist come back to life because he had been beheaded. He had been killed, of course, and already. Some think you're John the Baptist and you've come back to life. Others think you're Elijah. Some some people, some say John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah, who was supposed to come as a forerunner to the Messiah and to prepare the way of the Messiah, as we know from the quotes in the New Testament stories, of the Nativity story from the Old Testament, that Elijah would come, the last book of the Old Testament, the last phrase, that he would come to set the way and open the way for the Messiah. Others say you're Jeremiah. This is kind of a new one. This is interesting. That uh, this is the first time I've heard this one anywhere in the Gospels that you've heard that you're Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah was the prophet who prophesied strongly about the new covenant with the household of Israel. I will put my covenant in their hearts, and they and they will worship me. And he was and he was a very important major prophet to the Jewish faith. Some think you're Elijah, and some think you're one of the prophets or a prophet. This would have been typical, you know, and this this goes to show you. That, that, that people were accepting that there was something special about this man. He was not just any other. He, there was something special about this teacher, this Nazarene from Nazareth. There was something special about him. And he was having the qualities of a prophet. The prophet in the Old Testament, literally the word does not mean someone who tells the future. You know, we think a lot of times, but we always think of the word prophesy as telling the future. The word really literally means a fourth teller, one who speaks for God. And, of course, that involved telling the future, because most of the time they were telling Israel, if you don't change, this is what's going to happen. You have not changed, so this is going to happen. If you do change, this is what God would do. They're telling the future. But they are primarily one who speak for God. This is why Moses was a prophet. And Moses said, there will rise one like unto me, who God will bring forth ultimately as the great prophet. And they recognize there's something about this man that he speaks for God. He speaks from God. And we should listen to him. He might be Elijah. He might be Jeremiah. He might be, he might be John the Baptist even. He might be another prophet or a new prophet. And it's in this context that Jesus then says to them, but what about you? Verse 15. What about you, 12 disciples? Who do you say that I am? What about you? That's what they're all saying. What do you say? Who do you think I am? 
And he says this plural. He says this to the group. Who do you think that I am? And you notice, of course, in verse 16, Simon Peter. You know, so we, we tend to stereotype people in the Bible. I think we've stereotyped Simon Peter. You know, we often hear messages about Simon Peter's one who just opened his mouth and said whatever he was thinking and got himself in trouble and so on. He obviously speaks a lot in the New Testament. But I mean, he's the one who steps forward here and speaks for the rest of them. Jesus asked all 12 of them, who do you say that I am? And no one said anything. Peter steps forward. And Peter makes this proclamation. You are the Christ. Now, in our translations, most all of our translations will say, you are the Christ. And I want you to remember, uh, the Greek, the Christos, Christ, is translates the Aramaic and Hebrew, Mashiach, which means the anointed one. It, you know, we, we say Jesus Christ. Jesus was his name. Christ is not so much a name as it is a title. Jesus the Christ. And, and I think in the, in the Aramaic language that Peter spoke, it would, it would be a little more forceful than, you know, we think of it as you are Jesus Christ. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. You are the Mashiach. You are the anointed one of God that we have been waiting for. We have been waiting centuries for this one to come and overthrow our enemies and set up the glorious kingdom that will, that will be over the entire earth that the prophets told us about. We have been waiting and waiting for this. You are the Messiah. That's who you are. And then he goes on to say this. You are the Messiah and you are the Son of the living God. Friends, this was a powerful exclamation of Peter. This is a powerful statement of faith. To, to, to say this, to, to, this, 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 this common person from Galilee, he did not come from Jerusalem. He had no trappings of royalty. He didn't even have, he, he says, the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. He was homeless, if you will, in the sense that he depended on everybody else. He stayed at people's homes. He ate with them. He traveled. He was itinerant. He had, somebody had to support him after he left his family and began his ministry. This, this very common person who was now a teacher, a rabbi, if you will, one that they understood to be a prophet, and Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And friends, this is the sine qua non. This is the essential message of the New Testament. Peter encapsulates everything right here. You are the Savior, the Messiah. We, we sang Hosanna, right? Hosanna means save now. We recognize that. They cried when Jesus came down the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. They cried out, Hosanna, Hosea save now. Save now. You are the Savior. You are the Messiah. And you are the Son of the living God. That's who you are. And notice Jesus' response in verse 17. Jesus replied. There's a little bit of, there's a little bit of irony here. In the, in the, in the reply here. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonas. Now it's interesting. Jesus, uh, Peter says, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are the son of Jonas. Blessed are you, son of Jonas. 
For this was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. Now this is, this is powerful. Jesus says, Peter, you said this, but God gave this to you to say. I want you to understand, this is from, you said I'm the son of the living God, and I want you to realize you are right. And my Father, I am the Son, and the Father, He has given you this insight. My Father in heaven has given you. And then verse 18 and 19 are two verses which volumes have been written on in commentaries. And of course, naturally, as you might expect, as I was preparing this message, I got sidetracked in that study, right? How can you not do that? And it's a whole other message. It's a message within a message. And um, I decided I'm going to kind of hold off and write a, a paper on this, <laughs> an article on this, submitted to the to the uh, Grace Journal. Maybe maybe Sunday night this fall we'll come back to this because this is this is amazing and there's a lot here. And I'm just going to give you just in a nutshell what I what I think he's saying. Look, what he says here. He said, "I tell you this truth. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church." And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now that's powerful. That is authority. Now, you might, let me just give you, a, just give me, can I just give you just a short synopsis, kind of a sermon within a sermon here a little bit of what, just what I think we're, we're reading here. You may recognize this is one of the passages used to establish the idea of the papacy, that Peter was the first pope and he was given this authority and henceforth from that there has been a reign of those who are in his seat who a succession of leaders who have this authority. And this authority is pretty serious. Binding on earth, bound in heaven. It's very, very important, very serious. And the gates of Hades will never prevail against this church. And this is the first time in Matthew that we have this word for church. In the Hebrew, the Aramaic would have been kahal. And it, had, it was full of Mesiatic understanding. This word to these Jews, it was used by the rabbis, to talk about this future messianic gathering of God's people. And, and they understood this, that God was going to do this. Now, during the Protestant Reformation, when the Protestant tradition broke from the Roman Catholic and the authority of the Catholic Church, during, that, during those centuries, what became common understanding was that, no, this is not saying that God is going to build his church with Peter, but with on what he said. And there's a play on words because Peter's name in the Greek here means a, a small rock. It's a smaller rock. And on this big rock, this stone, the foundation, I will build my church. So what, what the Protestant interpretation generally was and has been for many is that no, this is not talking about Peter's authority. What it's talking about is that his confession of Christ, that this is the rock that the church will be built on. Now I'm going to suggest to you, while that is true, that actually, in, if you read most contemporary Greek uh, scholars, evangelical, conservative Greek scholars, and some of the best, and I want to suggest to you that the Catholic interpretation actually has some truth to it. The most natural reading of this is Peter. 
That's the most natural reading, and that's because Jesus is speaking Aramaic. There's really no reason he'd be speaking Greek here. And in the Aramaic, it comes out the same. The word kepha, which we get Cephas from, is, 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 is basically is you are kepha, and on this kepha, you are Cephas, and on this Cephas, I will build my church. And the most natural reading, some of the best Greek scholars like D.A. Carson and so forth, simply say if it were not for Protestant reaction against the extremes of this Roman Catholic interpretation, it is doubtful whether many would have ever taken rock to be anything or anyone other than Peter. There is something to this. However, it has nothing to do with infallibility. It has nothing to do with succession of leaders. It has nothing to do with, with this concept. What it has to do with is the role that these apostles were going to have in the kingdom program and in, and in presenting this ministry of building the church. This is what this is what Peter is. This is what the, the the talk what he's talking about here, and we'll come back to that. And and but but you'll notice when he says you will be given what you bind on heaven will be bound on earth will be bound in heaven. You notice the same thing is given to all the apostles later on in chapters 18 and 19. You're gonna you're gonna see the same thing. That you're gonna see that once again he says for all of you when they say what what we've left we've left everything. To follow you. What, what, what is there for us? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you will sit on the twelve tribes of the, of the tribes of Israel, you will sit in their thrones, and you will judge them. And what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And they are given this authority. So we'll come back to that another time and talk some more about that. But I think that there is something to this authority given to these apostles, and we see this in the early part of the book of Acts, don't we? As the ministry goes out, and Peter is the spokesman in the early part of Acts, for what God is doing as this Messianic kingdom is offered to Israel. But coming back as we close this this morning, the sine quo non. What is it? What is the most important thing? That without, that we have nothing left. What is the essential thing of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Peter proclaims it in this passage here, and it's from this passage on, from Matthew chapter 16 on, you will notice, you go back to Matthew 16, in verse 20, he warns his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And then he says this, says this Matthew says this, from that time on, from this point on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer many things at the hand of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day, be raised to life. And Peter says, no, don't, don't talk this way, Lord. Don't talk this way. And that's when Jesus says to Peter, verse 23, no, get behind me, Satan. This is not, this has to happen. And friends, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, from this point forward, the focus from Caesarea Philippi, the furthest north that Jesus goes into this area of this, this pagan worship, where Caesar is proclaimed, where the pagan gods are proclaimed, from this point forward, the story is focused on the cross, the passion, the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. From this point forward, this is the message. And, it, and this is where it, it, it really begins right here and moves to that end at Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say? Who do you say 
that Jesus Christ is? And friends, this is the most important question. This is the most important question. Who do you say? Now, I know most of you here, I don't know everybody, but I, I know your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have shared sad news today for us as a family, uh, two of our loved ones, that God has called home. It's not sad for them, right? But it's sad for us because they are part of our family. This is a sad day. But the essential heart and soul of our hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, the hope that on that day we will all be together. There, This is not all there is to life. And the essential question for you and for me, who do you say that he is? Is he who he claimed to be, the Son of God, God himself, the Savior who paid for our sins. That's who he claimed to be. What do you say about that? Who do you say that I am? And friends, for us in our daily walk, you know, do we ever come back to this central question? These other things, like we're going to talk sometime about Peter and his proclamation of the keys of the kingdom. But but the heart and soul, the, the issue that is that is centrally, without which the rest of it doesn't matter. The rest of it would be interesting discussion. But the heart and soul, the thing that matters the most, who do we really believe Jesus Christ is? Jesus, the anointed. You know, for us, as, as we walk each day with the Lord, and we are faced with decisions, we are faced with right and wrong, we are faced with opening our mouth and, and sharing the gospel. We are faced with our uncertainties and our fears. We are faced with concern for the future, maybe finances, jobs, health, whatever. As we are faced with these things, does not this question bring us back to what, we, what really sustains us? Do we really believe? Do we really believe? That the Savior, who we are part of in the body of Christ, is truly who he claimed to be. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that God is going to take care of us and our families? Do we really believe in eternity? Do we really believe in the resurrection? Do we really believe in life that goes on after this life? Do we really believe that? Do you really believe that God will care for your children in a world of such uncertainty and so many fears and, 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 and so much turmoil? Do you really believe that God has your children and grandchildren in his hand? He knows how to take care of what belongs to him. Do we really, who do we really say Jesus Christ is? Is he really our Lord and Savior? Is he the one who our life revolves around? And friends, I think each of us, myself to begin with, need to come back to this every day. This is a good question to start every day off with. This would be a good question. Kevin mentioned putting something in to, to tickle your mind to, to pray. This would be a good thing to start every morning with. Lord, who do I really believe you are? What does this mean to me? And how will this change my life? How will this change my life? As we left that area of Caesarea Philippi, you can't read this, but I'm going to read this to you. 
at one of these beautiful springs of this clear water, and it was it was it was clear, but there was an area where it was kind of pooled up, and there is this there is this pla- plaque here, and it's from John seven thirty seven. I don't think you can read it unless you're sitting right in the front. But let me read this to you. Let anyone who thirsts come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture says, rivers of living water flow from within him. John 7, 37. That great teaching that Jesus is the source of living water. If you're thirsty, all who are thirsty, come to me and drink. Believe in me, as the Scriptures say, and rivers of living water will flow from within, the source of life, the source of our hope. Right next to it is this little sign here. Whoops, sorry. This little sign right here that says in Hebrew and then in English, it says, Hashith Ha Sorah. Water not for drink. <laughs> I couldn't escape the irony of that. That's not what they intended. What they meant, of course, was it's not safe. It looks clear, but don't drink this water. But I couldn't help but see the irony in that. Let anyone who thirsts come and drink water not for drinking. And friends, that, that's the question. That is, that is the, that is the sine qua non. That is the question. Because you have to make a choice. And I don't know all of you, and if you're here today, the gospel message is simply this. Jesus Christ died for you and paid for your sins. You are a sinner. I don't need to tell you that. No one needs to tell me that. Jesus Christ was holy, perfect Son of God. He came to earth. He died on the cross. And He paid the price and punishment for our sin. He died for my sin and yours. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father and the apostles proclaimed anyone who the Roman, the, the, the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? And Paul simply said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And friends, there are going to be signs coming to you that says don't drink this water. It's not true. Don't drink it. And the message is there. Come and drink. It's a matter of simple faith. Would you receive Christ as your Savior? Would you receive Jesus Christ's payment for your sin and receive forgiveness for sins and eternal life? We've lost two loved ones this week. But we didn't really lose them. Right? We don't lose them. God has them. Because of Jesus Christ. What we lost is our end of it. But they're in God's care. And we will be too. This is the heart and soul of the gospel message. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who offers you salvation. And offers us each day to come back to this and come back to this and come back to this and remember, He really is who He claimed to be. And He is our Lord And He is taking care of us. And we are in His hands. And we can serve Him with joy and freedom because we have come to drink the water. Come 
and drink. Let's close our service. Our last song, Worship the Lord Jesus Christ as we sing together and proclaim His glory. My soul finds rest in God alone. He only is my salvation. My rock, my king, my fortress strong. And I will praise and notice the decorations today, right? A lot of work went into these decorations. Very careful planning, lots of work, and we are getting ready for Vacation Bible Adventure. Starts a week from Monday, but at that, on those days, Vacation Bible Adventure, we're going to teach our children the exact same thing I've taught you. We're going to teach them about God, about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are going to teach them the message of salvation because the Bible says that children can understand this. Many, many of us have come to Christ either at camp, which is going on right now and will be going on for the next several weeks, or vacation Bible school, church-related ministries, sometimes at home afterwards, sometimes while we're right here. For many of us, this is where the story began. And so I want to ask you to continue to pray for camp, for our youth ministries, for vacation Bible adventure, when this building is full of children in a few weeks, that we share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of sharing the good news. And Lord, I pray there may be one person here today and they would have to honestly say, no, I have never received Christ as my Savior. If that's you, friend, don't let the sign, don't drink the water, get in your way. The water is there. It's living water. He is the source of life. He is a source of forgiveness for sins. I have never met one person who, who, who was resented the fact they ever received Christ as Savior. And I ask you today in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, come, open your heart, receive God's forgiveness for sins, acknowledge your need for salvation, and tell Him that you would like to receive His payment for your sins. And Father, I ask that you would open that heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, I've been reminded this week too, outside of our church family, of the fragility of life and the importance of not putting off sharing the good news, offering the hope, offering that wonderful message of hope 
And Lord, we pray that each day we would ask ourselves, who do we really think he is? If we think he is who he claimed he is, why would we not share that? Why would we not share that? Put someone on our heart this week. Burden us and allow us to have the freedom and the boldness to open our mouths and share the good news of Jesus Christ. We've gathered in his name today and we leave this place. Amen. Mm -hmm.